Please remain standing and let's take out our Bibles. We'll turn to, well, we'll turn to Romans 15. Uh, we'll be reading this morning uh, Romans 14 and 15 as we will be finishing up this section. We're going to read this whole little section here so that we have it all in our minds. So we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 14 and we'll read through verse 7 of chapter 15. This is God's word to us. Let's give heed to its reading this morning. Paul writes for us under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit these words. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes who may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing, upbuilding. Uh, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we have seen and we have understood your word as teaching us the importance of unity. And we pray that as we continue to look at this topic uh, that was so important to the Apostle Paul and is so important to you, we pray that we would listen and that we would take these things to heart, Father, that we would seek to, uh, to uphold that unity that we have as we are all members of the one church, the one body of Christ, uh, with one Savior and one God and one Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would bless us as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to wrap up what we've been looking at, all of this that we read this morning. But let's, let's begin by remembering where we are and what Paul is talking about here. And that's the reason that I read this whole thing, as I said, is so that we can be sure that our minds are where we need to be as Paul continues this lesson in unity, unity in the church. He's speaking about that critical topic. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen him lay this out for us. And this, this section on unity is, is given to us as a part of his larger discussion on how we are to love one another how we are to honor one another. And that also is itself part of his larger discussion of how in view of the manifold mercy of, of God that has been shown to us that we ourselves are to present our lives as living sacrifices uh, to God, uh, to present ourselves as continual, as personal sacrifices of thanksgiving for God and for His grace that He's shown to us. Out of, out of thankfulness for what God has done, we are to offer up ourselves every day and in every way to Him. And loving one another is part of that. And the things that we've been seeing about unity in the congregation and how we deal with one another in the congregation are part of that love, which is part of that giving of ourselves as a living sacrifice. The expression of of that love that is currently under discussion here in chapters 14 and 15 is this topic of unity. And particularly, Paul is focusing on the question of how we preserve that unity by the way that we deal with one another on the subject of practices that are, are, fall into one or two categories that are either Old Testament practices and commands and restrictions that fall under the category of the ceremonial law. Uh, those aspects of the law that prefigured the work of Christ and pointed to Him that sort of filled in as placeholders for that work. Uh, and those things were all done away with once Jesus came and fulfilled them. Specifically in those areas, Paul has mentioned uh, the dietary laws and, and the system of holy days and feasts and days of fastings and so on. 
That's one category. The other category are, by way of application, are issues which are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture and therefore are considered indifferent. We've used that word adiaphora. That means indifferent things. As Paul speaks here, just to make sure that we're clear on this, when Paul is speaking and teaching in in this passage... The, the topics that he has brought up, the examples that he is specifically speaking to the Roman church about, are the things that fall into that first category. Those ceremonial things and, and the, the, the extension sort of of those that were going on in the Roman church and were causing problems. The, the topic of the adiaphora uh, are, are given to us really by way of application. We'll see that a little more as, as we go through this. It, it fits with what Paul is saying, but his narrow focus are on those things such as dietary laws and calendars of days that these people were struggling with. And he has said that there are some Christians, and notice again that they are believers, but there are some people in the church whose consciences have not yet fully grasped and come to terms with the freedoms in regard to the things uh, that, the, that the gospel and the new covenant bring to us as believers, our, our freedom from those Old Testament, the ceremonial laws. Um, important to remember that they are the ceremonial types of things, and of course we are not freed from God's moral law. That is always uh, applicable and always binds us. But there were those who have not yet come to that place of being able to recognize and to receive all of those freedoms that Christ have that Paul refers to in this section. And he refers to those people back in chapter 14 in verse 1 as those who are weak in faith. Not, not weak in their faith in Christ. Not that their faith in Christ was deficient. We've looked at all this. This is review. Uh, but weak in their grasp of all the implications of what Christ has done in regard to those things. And so they have difficulty uh, putting away those things. They still hold on to them. We saw that this, was, this group was largely made up of Jewish believers in the church because of their sort of living in that, that whole world of those ceremonial laws. It was And it makes sense. It was harder for them to let go of the things that they were steeped in and had been steeped in generations all the way back to Abraham. But there were other people in the church, Paul says, who have properly grasped all of that and and worked through all of that, who know that Christ has fulfilled all that, the, all that Old Testament ceremonial law and all that it represented and all that it pointed to and therefore understand that we are free under the new covenant. We're free from observing those things. Christ has fulfilled all of those things. But Paul's point now in, in chapter 14 and now in the opening verses of chapter 15 is that those two groups must accept one another must dwell in peace in the church together, must dwell in unity with one another. It must be the case, Paul says, that one group does not look down on the other group, that they don't judge their brothers, that they don't despise their brothers, that they don't disparage them for the the difference of where they are in regard to those types of things. 
And he has addressed his comments to both groups as he's gone through. He's spoken to the weak. He has spoke to the strong. His focus, remember, has been on the strong. He's been speaking to them more, and that's been his emphasis. He he counts himself, remember, among that group. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, we who are strong. So he's including himself in that. But how are they, how are the strong particularly, has been his focus to conduct themselves in regard to those of more tender consciences, of of weaker consciences, of more restricting scruples regarding these things. That's what we've been seeing. That's what the, that's what the focus is, the point of these, this passage. And he continues the, the, that emphasis to that group of people here at the beginning of chapter 15. As he speaks first about the obligation of the strong. And he gives it to us in verse 1 of chapter 15. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul says, strong Christians, you who recognize all of these things, this is especially on you. You have an obligation in regard to the weak. And that obligation is the obligation of love. That obligation is to, he says, bear with the failings of the weak. Back in the beginning, in in chapter 14, in verse 1, he said, welcome the weak in faith. And, And don't, like, bring them in, he said, to give them a hard time about these things. Not to quarrel over opinions with them, but welcome them. Be patient with them in their weakness, in their limitations. Don't be, Paul is saying, don't be all judgy about these things. And look down on them, but bear with them. This is love. Now, he, he does mention that the weak in faith are in an inferior position in their understanding. He calls them weak. They're not the strong. They're the weak. And their weakness is a failing. It, it, is, a, it is a weakness. But the point is that that's not the point. That they have a, a, a weakness in, in their understanding. But the point that Paul is making here is the obligation on the strong in regard to the weak in faith. The point is the obligation that the stronger, the person who is more sure of his freedoms in Christ, the person who more fully grasps the larger implications of the gospel regarding those indifferent kinds of things or those Old Testament ceremonial things which are done away with in Christ, the obligation that the stronger has. That's what Paul's focusing on here. If you've been with us for any amount of time or if you've read any of Paul's epistles, or if you've read the Gospels, or if you've read the New Testament in general, you have seen how important this is, this idea of unity and bearing with one another. You see it by how it just is said in so many different ways. It is crucial that because of the love we are to have for one another, our primary consideration is not to be ourselves. Our primary consideration, our our emphasis is to be on others, not on ourselves. And Paul says it again here. 
He says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That goes so contrary to our fallen human nature to say that we are in anything not to please ourselves. Because our nature is to seek to please ourselves in everything. Paul says, don't do it in regard to how you treat one another in the church. Why is he picking on the strong here? Why do they have a particular obligation? Well, if you think about it, it's logical. The strong in this situation of these different uh, levels of understanding and the, the, the weak conscience versus the strong conscience, the weak faith uh, versus a strong faith, the strong does not have to violate his conscience to hold back exercising his liberty for the sake of a weaker brother. We saw a little bit of this last week. But the weaker brother does. See, if the, if the stronger brother says, I want to help my weaker brother, he just does not exercise every liberty that he has. But if the weaker says, I want to accommodate to the stronger, then he goes down a road that he does not believe is the right road to go down. The weaker brother does it. If he is to join the strong in his liberty, he has to violate his conscience. So it is appropriate then for the strong to have the special obligation, for the strong to take the lead under love to bear with the failings of the weak. Verse 2 continues, and in a way it seems expands this a little bit to perhaps include the strong and the weak. In verse 2 he says, one person, that's sort of generic, believes, I'm sorry, I'm in wrong chapter. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Each of us. That could include the weak as well. Back in chapter 14 in verse 3, Paul said, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So this is not just the the realm of the strong imposing issues on the weak or imposing judgment on the weak, but the weak can do it on the strong, right? We saw that the weak can look at the strong and say, they're just not following God's law. They are participating in license. They're just throwing off God's word. And, and it is we, it is the, the more narrow, it is the, the, the ones who do not eat, uh, who follow all of these Old Testament regulations. We're the ones who are really staying close to God's word. Paul says that's not true. And both should not or neither should judge the other. We are each to seek not to please ourselves but to please one another. You see how, again, the Bible moves us to the bottom of that ladder, to the bottom of the people-to-please ladder. At the top of that is God. We are to please God above all in everything we do. Next on that, it's a short ladder, but it's pertinent. Next, we are to please our neighbor. And then on the bottom rung is pleasing ourselves. Now, this, this, this godly desire hopefully, this obligation to please our weaker neighbor is not, to, is not the type of people-pleasing that we often think of. 
It's not the people-pleasing that Scripture forbids elsewhere, where the meaning is don't seek to please people rather than God, in preference to or at the expense of pleasing God. But the idea of pleasing has to do here with doing, well, Paul explains it in the rest of the verse, in the rest of verse 2. He explains what that is. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So do good, do what builds up your neighbor. That's how you are to please your neighbor. This is our obligation in regard to our brothers and sisters. Do those things that build them up and thus are for their good. 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Now, in neither of those two verses does he say, don't be concerned about yourself. In Philippians, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. We have to look to our own interests. We have to be concerned about ourselves. But but he is saying, look first to the interests of others. That's where the priority is to be for us. And Paul here is really continuing this thread that has been running through Romans all the way from chapter 12 and comes to this manifestation here. In in chapter 12, in verses 3 and 9 and 10 and 16 and 18, and in chapter 14, basically all of chapter 14, is this same thing. For example, in 14, verse 19, Paul said, and you can look at it there in verse 19, he said, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And here it's the same. This is how, beloved, we walk in love in the church. This is how we, as he said earlier in chapter 12, here's how we outdo one another in showing honor in this situation of differing opinions on these things. We give room to the weak and we seek to deal with them in ways that build him up, that edify him, not that drag him down. So in the context of of Paul's specific example, this would mean that the strong, and we looked at this last week, that the strong would not insist on exercising their liberty in regard, say, to food. Not eating food or not eating meat in the presence of the weaker believer, those things that the weaker believer could not in good conscience join in. Or at least not seek to draw the weaker believer into partaking in things that his conscience tells him are not right. Because, as we saw last time, although nothing is unclean in itself, Paul says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And that's the very issue with the weaker in faith, with the brother in faith. They believe it is sin. And so for us to do, for the stronger to do anything that entices them to do that, entices them to sin against their conscience and therefore to to act contrary to faith and anything that is not according to faith, Paul says, is sin. So our goal, the goal of the strong, is and should always be, and the goal of the weak for that matter, should always be to get along wherever possible in regard to these things, to promote unity in the congregation. In Romans 12, 18, Paul said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
And, and looking at the application of, of this obligation, you know, we are people with different opinions on various topics. And we've said this before, but as we, we wrap up this look at this this morning, I want to remind us of this that there are things in the Bible on which people who call themselves Christian, who are Christian, perhaps, hopefully, things on which we'll disagree. Some of those things we can't disagree on. Some of those things are critical, foundational, doctrinal topics. Sometimes we call them salvation issues. And these are the things that touch on the very nature of who God is, the, the question of who man is, his nature and his fallenness, things about who Christ is and, and why he came and what he did when he was here uh, that have to do with the way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as presented in the gospel of Christ, things that have to do with the future return of Christ, his promise that he is coming back, and the resurrection and the judgment of all people and the fact of the eternal state of heaven and hell, on these and things like them we must all be in agreement and we must be ready and willing to divide over those things. True unity can come in the church only in the context of agreement on these kinds of topics. They are non-negotiables. But there are other things that we disagree on as well. And those are the things that that Paul is getting at here. Issues of of doctrine. There are things that we believe that that are different. Things that we can believe differently. And issues of practice especially. Theological issues and issues of personal practice. Questions of of child rearing and how we, we best do that. Questions of dating practices, of education, homeschooling, private schooling, public schooling, uh, issues of exercise, uh, questions about government, the best kind of government and the limits of government and how to react when we disagree with them. Although, remember we saw back in chapter 13, that we are commanded that we are to submit to the governing authorities except for when they violate a clear teaching of Scripture and command us to either do something God forbids or forbid us from doing something God commands. Uh, the, the use of alcohol is another one. The place of recreation, whether, whether it's right to, to take a tax benefit for offerings that you give to the church, going into debt, a myriad of things that fall into this category of adiaphora, indifferent things, things the Bible does not directly speak to. And we can differ on those things. And we do differ on some of those things. But love, Christian love, and Paul's teaching here, is that none of those things and our differences about them are to be allowed to cause division within the church. And we are, in all of our holdings of these opinions are to always have in mind the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters. That's the obligation. And to that obligation, then, Paul presents an example. And that example is the best of examples, the greatest of examples. It's the example of Christ. And he gives it in verse 3. 
After saying the things that he said, he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As I say, the greatest motivation for for obeying this exhortation is the imitation of Christ. We are to please our neighbor. We are to act for his good because that's what Christ did. He sought in, in all things, in all of his actions, to please his Father and therefore to act for the good of those whom his Father had given to him to save, even to the point of dying for their sins. And we are to seek the good of others at our own expense. And and when we do that, even when we do that, even when we do the best at that that we can, it is but the faintest of shadows of what Christ did. Because we know what Christ did. Paul mentions it in Philippians 2. He says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that's what he did in order to bear with our failings for our good. Our failings, which are are incomprehensibly greater than those of our brothers and sisters in regard to the little indifferent things that we often sometimes go to war over in the church. Christ bore constant abuse. He was absorbed in an unbel- he, or he absorbed an unbelievable amount of slander from enemies and from friends. And yet he never I'm sorry, and yet he ever and always gave. He always loved. He always looked to the good of those that hurt him. And then Paul, as he does so often, quotes an Old Testament passage to support this, to support what he's saying. He says, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's from Psalm 69. It's the same psalm from where we get the quote, remember when Jesus was clearing out the the money changers and the the people who had turned the temple uh, into a place of business. And we read that quote, zeal for your house has consumed me. This is in the same psalm. But that section and this one are both applied to Jesus as the ultimate one who suffered reproach for the sake of God's will. And for the good of sinners. And, and as, as this was a characteristic of the divine Son of God, we should note that this willingness to suffer restrictions, to suffer loss, to, to be humbled for the sake of others, to give up one's liberties in these situations, that that's not a weakness. It's a show of, of true strength, a, a show of true character. And it is for us to do as Christ did when he gave up so much and came not to be served, but to serve. As we seek to imitate that, it shows us to be in that category of the strong. So as Paul brings in this quotation 
uh, something in, in the fact that he did it brings something to his mind that he then expands upon in verse 4. And he shows us then the instruction of Scripture, which is the next thing. His bringing in of this quotation causes him to reflect on the propriety of bringing in this Old Testament stuff to instruct us in the New Testament. And he gives to us the instruction of Scripture. And this, is a little, this verse is a little bit of a parenthesis here. Um, as Paul gives it to us, and, and in and of itself, he gives us an important motivation for our own attitude towards Scripture, our own study of Scripture, including the Old Testament. And in this well-known verse here, Paul says in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So he says, what was written in former days. So not just Psalm 69, he says, but, but all of the Old Testament Scripture. Now, of course, as this was written, the New Testament Scripture had not been written yet or was being written. Uh, so I think from our perspective, it would include all of sacred Scripture. But especially that Paul would point us here to the Old Testament, speaks to the value of the Old Testament. You know, we, all of us, at one time or another, struggle, some more than others, to read our Bibles. And it's especially true of the Old Testament. Perhaps not so much in churches like ours, but in many areas of the church, reading the Old Testament is is a neglected practice. There are some parts of the church who dismiss it in practice, if not in theory, as unimportant or even as, as irrelevant to us today. Some in the history of the church has, ever, has even seen the Old Testament as presenting a different picture of God or as presenting a different God than the, Old Te- than the New Testament. But even for more orthodox believers, it can be difficult at times, and the Old Testament can be, and it can be thought of as not as much use as the New Testament. But Paul says not so. He says, whatever was written, everything that was written, again, particularly focusing there on the New Testament, or on the Old Testament, everything that was written was written for our instruction. You know, let's pause there for just a minute and appreciate the great and purposeful gift that you hold in your lap this morning. It was written not for some generic reason, Not just for God to leave a witness of the things that's happened. It does that. Not just to to simply bear witness to a set of facts, though it bears divine witness to the greatest facts of of infinitude, of, of eternity. But it was written, Paul says, for us. It was written for you. For our instruction. And written, he says, that we might have hope. And hope is something that we often lack. Hope is something that seems very fragile. That if we're not careful, if we're not nurturing it, that it goes away or it is weakened. 
But the word of God, Paul says, all of it was written for you, for us, for the church. To fill the church through the message, its message of salvation through faith in Christ. And to strengthen the church through the building up of its members. To transform us through the renewing of our mind. It was written to instruct us about God and his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his promises, his covenant. And specifically here, Paul mentions that it was written that we might have hope. And that, Paul says, comes through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, the encouragement that the Scriptures give us in the face of, in the midst of the trials that we endure. The purpose of the instruction that the Scriptures gives and through the endurance in the face of trials that it brings about in our lives, it is given that we might have hope, that our hope might be strengthened in God that we might have an ever-increasing confidence in the promises that God makes to us. You know, consider this this morning, that without the encouragement we receive, not based on our own abilities, but on God's grace, without that encouragement, we would have no basis on which to endure the things that we are called to endure. But because we do have encouragement, We do endure. And therefore, as Paul says, we have hope. We've seen what's happened in the past. We've seen how God has been ever and always in every situation faithful. And so we know that when we face trials, when we have difficulties, we know that the promises that God has made for us are true. And we can have hope. We can have confidence in God. It's interesting, though, that Paul writes there in our English translation, it says that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In the original, it says that we might have the hope. Not just some vague, positive outlook, but a strong, secure, confident in the promise of God through Christ in the middle of whatever we face, the hope that we have through and in Jesus Christ. How important then, in the midst of difficulties, is being immersed in the scripture that God has given to us? How important is it, how critical is it, to have the promises of God, the word of God, hidden in our hearts for a necessary time? And by the way, this isn't the first time that Paul links endurance and hope in the book of Romans. Back in Romans 5.3, he said, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the link that Paul doesn't mention there in that place, in that chain, is the encouragement that we get through the scriptures. Now, the next thing that Paul says is another very Paulish thing to do. He stops and he offers a prayer, a prayer for his readers concerning what he's talking about here. It's the prayer 
of Paul in our outline. He prays in verses 5 and 6. He says, may the God, and he just stops what he's doing. He stops his, his instruction and he prays. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that, you toge- that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he gets to the end of all of this that he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 14, he prays that God would make it so, that God would make it happen in the midst of the church. Now, do you notice the connection? Did you catch it between what the prayer that Paul gives and what he had just said? He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Where does the endurance come from? Where does the encouragement come from? It comes from God. He is the source of it. He is the fountain of it. He is the provider of it. May the God of endurance and encouragement, and now he brings it back to his topic. May that God who brings about endurance through trials and whose word encourages in the midst of those trials, may this same God, Paul says, work unity in the church. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. May he grant you to live in harmony with one another. This is God's work. It says to to live in harmony with one another. Literally, it means to be of the same mind, to have a common mindset, to have a common thought. May you agree together with all that I have said to live with one another in this way to lift up one another, to do good for one another. And this, he says, in accord with Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ was the example that Paul put forward. The example of putting the needs of others ahead of one's own. And it means in accordance with his teaching. We think back to the high priestly prayer that Christ prayed when he was praying for us. And he says, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. But he doesn't just pray, notice, that that we would live in harmony. But what does he say? He He prays that we would live in such harmony. In such harmony, what? When you say it like that, you expect something to come. Live in such harmony, he says, that together... Stop there for just a second. We are one people. We sang that. The chosen of the Lord, born of His Spirit, established by His Word. And Paul is praying that we would recognize that and live like that in the church, that together, and Paul prays, and we must pray, that we may together with one voice, he says, with a singularness of mind, that we may, without dissension, without disruption, without disunity, what? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. 
Our chief end in in pursuing unity is to glorify God. Because it does, that glorifies God. Whether weak in faith, with tender consciences, uh, with a ways to go still in, in grasping the breadth of the work of Christ and the depth of the freedom that we have in Him, whether strong in faith, humble but confidently, biblically informed and living in the light of the liberty of Christ, all together, Paul says, serving one another as we serve Christ, let us do so in a way that glorifies God. You know, I said a couple weeks ago when we began looking at this, that disunity can destroy a congregation perhaps faster than anything. That's true. And Paul says here, let us always be on guard against it. And let us always be on guard against it. And the things that can lead to it. And sometimes, as as I mentioned even earlier this morning, it doesn't take much. And in the context here, it can take something as little as thinking that your brother is exercising more liberty or less liberty than you would, than you're comfortable with. And so Paul himself concludes then where he began in verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. Back at the beginning of chapter 14 when he began this, he said, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. If Christ humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, how little of a thing does he ask of us that we humble ourselves so as to live and to worship and to serve in harmony with one another in the church. And all of that, Paul says, for the glory of God. Let that be... Let that be such an important aspect of the way that we think when we think about our congregation. We can can apply this more broadly and should apply it more broadly, but we cannot fail to apply it to us. To we who are sitting here this morning, let us give one another the benefit of the doubt in those indifferent things. Not insist that everyone think the way that we think. Holding to the the essentials, holding to the great doctrines of the church, the great doctrines of the scripture, but in regard to the indifferent things, let us allow people a little space, a little room, a little difference, and let us do it all for the glory of God. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you that... All the church is one church. All of the true church is is that one true church of Christ of which you are the one Father of all. We thank you for Paul's teaching. We thank you for his instruction and we pray that you would help us to take it to heart. We thank you for this congregation. We pray that you would guard us against disunity. 
in this way and in various other ways that it might seek to creep in. We pray that you would help us to search the scriptures, that we may be on guard against those things and give us humility. Give us the humility to do the things and to, um, to love one another in the way that we must in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is your command to us and it is our desire. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.